So this is a story about sheep. I know some of you have sheep. Some of you have seen sheep. Let me show you a picture of one of our sheep. Now this was kindness. And kindness, if you look at her, she hasn't been sheared yet. She's got a lot shorter hair now. But I want you to imagine kindness. And she's a scared sheep most of the time. So if you walk by all of a sudden and you move, so you move suddenly, she all of a sudden will jump, right? So what, could you, what do you think would happen if all of a sudden a dog came into the yard? That she didn't know. What do you think she would do? She would start running. And that's exactly what she did. She saw in her mind, and I remember I was going out, I heard her you know, yelling. And as I heard that, I looked outside and I saw this, little, this, this black blur going after kindness this week. And I thought to myself, I better get out there. So I went out the front door, I ran around the side. I had my gun on me, thinking it could be, you know, who knows, coyote or whatever. And as I look out there, all of a sudden, something happens. Kindness whips around, and beside her comes a little chihuahua. That was the wolf that she was running for. That's actually a picture. You can get it off the internet. It's a true picture. That dog's bone is being taken away. Well, this little dog was chasing kindness all over the place. And it was only happening for a few seconds, like a minute maybe, but kindness is all huffing and puffing. And I'm thinking, to myself, I better get out there and get that little dog away. And out of, out of the blue comes a brave soul, her friend, Shauna. And what did Shauna do? Did she run away from the sheep, you think? She charged this, this little chihuahua. And, she, and I, I, I said, I better get out there quick because Shauna's rolling the thing over and taking her horns and jabbing it into it. And I saw her go towards the corner of the field and this little chihuahua was going, and, and kindness is coming after and excuse me, Shauna is going after her, And meanwhile, kindness runs over towards the sheep shed and is going, ah, ah. that was so terrible. That was a wolf. In her mind, it was a wolf. You know, this little dog back there. Look at that little dog. Not very big, but when a sheep, this kindness anyway, saw a four-legged canine coming after her, it wouldn't matter how big that dog was, she would think, what, a coyote or a wolf? It's coming after me. So what's the difference between <laughs> kindness, running away from a little wolf, and Shauna? What do you think? Why would one run away and the other one charge it? What do you think? Okay, like God's protecting us. Shauna obviously is different than kindness, then, isn't she? Kindness is scared. Shauna is actually brave at times. And I put the little answer up on the screen. Shauna faces that wolf that kindness thought she had and actually attempts to kill it. She, she, would, she would trample that thing and, and keep rolling and, and horning it if she could. But it luckily got into a, a ball of fence along the edge of the property there where some of the fence was connected. And it, it was hiding in there waiting for us. And we did find its home eventually. It was, it was safe. But the difference is you have a brave sheep and a fearful sheep. This sheep knows, Shauna knows here, she knows that eventually I'm going to get out there more than likely. And she's also the kind of sheep that even if our dogs come in there, and we have three dogs, big dogs, two Pyrenees and one's a German Shepherd mix. The two Pyrenees come in there and Shauna will, do, will, have, will not pick on that dog at all. But if the little, smaller I should say, German Shepherd mix comes in there, here comes Shauna, and she's got the horns down and saying, you better watch it. I'm going to you know, get after you. You look like awful lot like a coyote over there. And so we have a two different sheep. 
two different personalities. This one telling us that you don't always have to run from the fear. You can actually turn around and be brave and face the fear, trusting that the shepherd's eventually going to get there. And guess who else I sent ahead of me? I opened the gate and my, all my, my, my protector dogs went out there and were looking for this little wolf too. And so Shauna, I think, deep down knows that she does not have to fight off long. She knows that help is coming. And, I, and she was trusting that eventually we would be out there to take care of the situation. In the meantime, she was going to take care of it herself. So you have two sheep, two things that we could be like. We could be like Shauna, the brave sheep, or like kindness, the fearful sheep. I want to be like Shauna, trusting that overall things are going to take place, but I also may have to do something in the process. So let's pray that God will use us like Shauna. Maybe you don't have to be brave and fight off a little, little wolf like that, but maybe you've got other problems in life. And just trust God that he'll help you through it and you need to be brave and face it, but he'll help you through that trouble like Shauna. All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the story of Shauna, the brave sheep. Not just the smart one that picks our locks and stuff, but Shauna, the brave sheep, who was there to help her companion who was so fearful, and Shauna, the one who stood up to what's ahead of her, and Shauna, who recognized this was no wolf. It was just a little chihuahua. Guide us in our lives to recognize the problems ahead of us that we do have, that we're facing even right now, and help us to trust you and be brave, recognizing that in your sight, these are just, just small problems in the scope of eternity. I pray you bless each child here and guide them to be there that day when you come again in the new earth and make it all brand new. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, I have an assignment for you. During the sermon, you need to fill out this sheet. You'll have some of the answers in the bulletin, and some of them are on the screen, so you've got to watch the sermon carefully. Yeah, sometimes the hero in the story is the sheep rather than the shepherd. And this, this morning as we consider our shepherd, our Lord, and what time it is in earth's history, let us be like Shauna the brave sheep. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you that we could open up your word now. And as we look at the scriptures and we consider what time we are living in in earth's history, help us not, not to be fearful. Help us to be brave. Help us to face what's ahead of us, knowing that our shepherd is soon to come, soon to help and is sending help in every single situation. Guide us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I was reading through a quarterly, our quarterly lesson, and maybe you came across the same story in your July 28 devotional. And as it was talking about church planting, I thought to myself, man, you know, look at, look at this map of the United States, for instance. You see all of these areas of light. That, this is a NASA photograph. All of these major cities, all of these, maybe a lot of them were major industrial, maybe they're getting to the point where they're post-industrial because of all the setbacks in the economy, but all of these major cities, how in the world are we going to reach all of those cities? Especially with the languages, the different cultures. And in your quarterly on July 28, it says this, it seems strange that Jesus' disciples would have direct orders to enter their ministry territory with little to sustain themselves. He talks about not taking extras with you, right? Apparently, Jesus placed his disciples in this situation to teach them dependence on God and also the importance of creating friendships through service to the local residents. These local residents would then value their service enough to provide support for the ministry that they were doing. And now we have a story. Pastor Frank's local conference asked him to plant a church in a section of one of these large cities as pictured here on the screen. 
You can imagine which one it is in your mind's eye. But this city had virtually no Adventist presence, and initially he had no budget to do anything. Huh. All right. Has his local sustenance budget that gets him by, but nothing really for seed money, nothing really to plant this church with. He consulted a map and determined the boundaries of that section of the city. He studied the demographics of the people there. Then he parked his car in the busiest part of the neighborhood and began going from business to business, asking questions about life in that area. He visited with the political, business, and social agency leaders, asking questions about the greatest needs in that community. We've done some of that. We can always keep doing more. He made friends with some of the local residents in a short time who invited him to join a local civic club. In that setting, he discovered other leaders who opened the way to rent the annex of a local Presbyterian church. The civic club members provided seed money. There's the seed money. The civic club members provided the seed money to buy paint and cleaning supplies to refurbish this annex to use for community services. Interviews with community leaders indicated that health care was an important need in that community. It's a main issue in a lot of communities. Therefore, Pastor Frank brought together a team of volunteers who ran various health screenings. So he ends up working with others who can come in and do these programs. Those who benefited from the screenings and programs paid a modest fee, which helped pay the expenses. Soon a branch Sabbath school is formed, and somewhere down the line they end up having a church with 140 members in this unworked area. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? And I still remember the thought as I was driving through the middle of Nebraska, somewhere right there. And in fact, if you look at this map closely on the internet, you'll notice it looks like an interstate going across there. There's these blips of light all along there, and that's actually I-80. And I remember looking out at the city of Kearney, 30,000 residents, and thinking to myself, Lord, we, we have such a small group here. How are we going to reach all these people? But not only that, but how are we going to reach the whole people, all these people in my district? For as it is there, it will be here soon. Four churches in a district. Basically, the churches are down in their teens or 20s in attendance. A hundred people, excuse me, 70 people stretched out this whole distance here from Kearney down to here. It was a two-hour drive and on a good condition. And there are over 75,000 people, almost 76,000 people in those areas along the way. How is one person going to reach all of those people? And let alone, how are 70 going to do it? You say, well, 70 might have a chance. But one person, short of Jesus, reaching 76,000 people. Feels overwhelming, doesn't it? And maybe you feel overwhelmed sometimes when you drive by towns or, or neighborhoods and think, what could I do for Jesus here? What, is, is, is there someone here who's, who's following Jesus in this neighborhood or this town? It seems strange, like that story says, but as I think of how to reach all of these small towns and large cities, some of you are familiar with some of those large cities, so a lot of them have gated communities. A lot of them have apartment complexes where you can't even get into them. How in the world is that, are those areas going to be reached? I think, first of all, we have to have a message that is going to reach those people. A message that is going to not just make them feel good, but it's going to, it's going to encourage them of God's love. It's going to challenge them. It's going to prepare them, yes. A message that is very important. And I believe it's also known as the Elijah message. Elijah message... According to Matthew chapter 3, the message of John the Baptist, he said his message was to prepare the way for the Lord. Now you can find all kinds of books that describe what the Elijah message they, people think it is. 
But if you look to the scriptures, John is very clear. His message was to prepare the way for who? Jesus, the Lord. And what does he say in John chapter 1, verse 29? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So he points people to Jesus Christ. That's what the Elijah message was when he was preaching it. And yes, it called for repentance. And yes, it pointed out sin and error. But it also pointed them to the balm of Gilead himself. That message really then was a message of Jesus because Jesus himself took it up. He took up that same message and said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and anointed me. And he goes on and describes, right there in your quarterly, you've already read it, his mission statement. Same message of John, the same message of the Old Testament prophets. And as you compare the days of Elijah, then that Elijah message, our young people are studying about the birds. Uriel mentioned the birds. And as I thought of that, I was thinking to myself, what a wonderful down payment we can make by taking care of God's creatures now. Because what if they come to help us later? That, that, that's an amazing thought, isn't it? But in the days of Elijah, there was that messenger, Elijah. What was his message? Return to the Lord. In other words, don't halt between two opinions. Follow God. You know, idol worship is more than just a graven image in front of you. That graven image represents a whole belief system. We were learn learning about Artemis this week in a Revelation class. And Artemis... Is, is said to hold the keys of death in Hades, the keys of your hope and future. And yet, what does Revelation chapter 1 begin with? Jesus holds the keys of death in Hades. All of these idols and these false belief systems are really detracting from Jesus. And so the message back in Elijah's day was, return to the Lord, return to Him. He's the one who brought you out of Egypt. He's the one who created you. He's the one who provided that water from the rock. And who is that rock that followed you according to Paul? Jesus. So the Elijah message of the Old Testament was pointing forward to Jesus. God will forgive. God will provide that bomb. What was the effect when they refused to receive the message? Three and a half years of no rain. Now we've had drought here, haven't we? We've talked about the idea of a drought. Imagine it going on for three and a half years. No rain. Nothing to replenish. Now we had some time of that, didn't we? And eventually the lakes will dry up. Eventually you'll find crops fail. Famine resulting. So it had a huge environmental effect, and the fate of that messenger was he had to be driven from basically society because the society couldn't accept the message. Even the very claimed people of God could not accept the message of Jesus. Israel was in apostasy, and he was called the troubler of Israel, and we know his message went for about three and a half years. John the Baptist, he told them to repent, and he pointed them to the Lamb. He said, follow the Lamb. We don't have a real record of the environmental effect of them, whether or not we know that there were some lives that were changed that eventually trickled out into society. He preaches from the wilderness, just like we find Elijah eventually ends up in the wilderness. He dies for his message. What was the state of Israel? Basically, they had rejected from the wise men's own lips and from the signs in nature that Jesus, from the very beginning, they rejected Jesus. They were an apostasy. They didn't know it, but they were an apostasy. And their apostasy ended, of course, with the stoning of Stephen. And they said to John, well, who are you anyway? They weren't even willing to accept him. And he says, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. And he points them to Jesus. Three years of preaching is the estimate of the time, duration of his preaching. And who comes after him? Jesus himself. The Lamb of God. What's his message? Basically, he's the Lamb of God. He's going to take away your sins. He's going to forgive. He says in John, it's said in John chapter 1, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Sons and daughters of God. Do you realize that that's a restoration of the very title that was given to Adam in the beginning? 
You look at the genealogy of Jesus and Luke. Adam, who was the son of God. And what is Jesus called? The son of God and the son of man. He's trying to restore us back to being his children. And the only way to do that is to accept him as our Messiah, as our lamb who was slain for our sins. And what was the environmental effect? You find the record in the Gospels is clear. There's that voice at his baptism. This is my beloved son. You have that dove coming down. You have another voice later on that says, this is my son, listen to him on the Mount of Transfiguration. And then you get on down to his death. What happens at his death? Darkness in the middle of the day. You find earthquake takes place. Baal the temple ripped in two. And eventually another rumbling takes place with the angels and rolls that stone away. Environmental effects. Fact of such that even Peter writes about it in the book of Acts where he mentions this idea from Joel, that of the stars falling, basically the, the, excuse me, the, the moon being blotted out like red, blood, making, being made blood red. So there was these environmental effects, and then there was a the death of Jesus, of course. The state of Israel, once again, was as a nation. They were in a state of apostasy. Sure, there were individuals like Nicodemus, and they called Jesus demon-possessed, son of Beelzebub. They basically rejected the Holy Spirit working through Jesus. And Jesus said, basically, that's the unpardonable sin. Three and a half years of preaching, and he he is killed. And so this message is a continuation message. Jesus said, Elijah will come. We are the Elijahs, and that's exactly the truth from the Scriptures. Because in Revelation chapter 14, there's a message that comes that calls the world back to Jesus with the everlasting gospel that, that talks about how you can be restored to true creator worship like Adam had, the sons and children of God. And it is talking about a crucified, risen, and soon coming Savior. Because it says in Malachi 3 that the Elijah message would come and restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and children to their fathers. There is no other message that can do that other than a message of Jesus, of a changed heart. That's the everlasting gospel. And if you really truly understand the Sabbath, that's the Sabbath from week to week. It's about restored relationships. It's about bringing fallen human beings like us together in a place like this to hear a word from the Lord. Together. To interact in the classrooms. To interact with children learning. All of this is about connectedness. And that comes really by knowing that Jesus Christ died for each one of us individually. And we're each of value to him. That's the everlasting gospel. You find there's aspects of it in Revelation about the Sabbath and others. And we know that the Revelation 14 message points to the creator who's Jesus. Whoa, I thought he was dead according to some records. Josephus says that he's dead. Others don't want to acknowledge that he's alive. Well, this means that we believe he's risen then. That he still has that same creative power that he had at the beginning, that he had all the way through his ministry, he still has it today. And so that message of Revelation 14, when it says, worship him who made, means that he's alive. He's alive to worship. And then it restores the law of Moses, which is the Sabbath. It points out a counterfeit oneness message that even invades the remnant church which includes eventually in the Christian world a false Sabbath and relationships based upon fear because it has to have a death decree to enforce its dictates. Warns the world of a flood of fire saying, turn. Turn to Jesus. So we have, if you want to have a nutshell of the message, it's just a crucified, risen, and soon coming Savior. 
It's been fleshed out in various ways. It's been prophesied since the very first prophecy of the one who would crush the head of the serpent. But it's right there in the scriptures. And Revelation 14 says basically the same thing as the Elijah message of the Old Testament. The Elijah message of the Old Testament said, if the Lord is God, follow him. Revelation 14 verse 4 says, the ones who are really saved at the end are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. So you find Elijah's message is really the message of Jesus Christ. And so how do we reach so many? First of all, you've got to have that message. If you don't know Jesus as your friend and Savior and Lord, you've got nothing to share with anybody else. If I don't get up in the morning, and you know how it happens sometimes, maybe even a part of a day goes by where you're just so busy, right? Pause. Pausing to spend that time with the Lord. Every day, recognizing you're a Christian only because of Jesus. That you have the assurance that no matter what happens in this world, that your relationship with Christ is that strong, it'll go through that. That your sins are forgiven. That you don't pompously say, I'm saved, I'm saved, but you know you're saved because 1 John chapter 5 says, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. And verse 13 says, these things I write to those who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John knew that he had eternal life. Not that he was somehow all the way arrived, because we know he was a son of thunder, has to learn to love. But he recognized that his salvation was in Jesus, and he was still focusing and trusting in Jesus. Yes, all the fearful things were happening all around him. Yes, they were even getting a, a cauldron of boiling oil ready to deep fat fry John. But what did he do? He trusted in Jesus. And so we must have a message to take to the world. But not only that, if, as I read that message of Revelation 14 very clearly, it, there's an urgency of that message. Imagine the loved one that you really care about. And for some reason they go astray. And maybe they are astray. Imagine fire coming down and just devouring right now. How would that make you feel? That's exactly the destination that, that we find in Revelation if that person does not recognize Jesus died for them and they accept that and that he's Lord of their lives. That's the destination of every person around us if they don't know Jesus. That's your destination if you don't know him either. And so there has to be an urgency because as I look at the, the lost, right here in the mirror, right? That's what I was. What would I want done for for myself if I was in their situation. I see, I don't have to think back very far. All I gotta do is think back to 1998. Some of you might have become Christians, you might have to think back a little further. Some of you who are recent Christians, not even closer back than me. What would I want someone to do for me? I'd want you to be praying for me like my grandfather did. I'd want you to, at some point, just try to plant a seed even if I go, Ugh, I don't want it. I didn't know I wanted it. I didn't know I would want those things, but I know later on that God spoke through those things and got my attention. And one of the biggest ways was acts of kindness. Meeting my needs. And I know we're in a materialistic world and people sometimes take advantage of that. And we even have a policy here in our church of how to access funds if somebody comes by and asks for them. We, it, it, we have to develop those safeguards. But, but meeting needs of people around you. So what would we want the messengers to would we want the messengers to take the time they had right now to, to, to really do it seriously, to spend time with Jesus and to share Jesus? Because Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, I am come to send fire on the earth, 
And what will I if it already be kindled? And I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how I am straightened till it be accomplished. I'm just looking straight at it until it's accomplished. What is this fire? We know it's talking about a baptism of fire, and he later on links it to the crucifixion, the, the Garden of Gethsemane, the whole crushing time to go through for you and for me so we don't have to be sitting in the fire. His death. Yet there were many people even in that day who could not receive that message he would talk about his crucifixion and dying for them and they'd just be, they wouldn't even be able to accept that because their picture of the Messiah was totally jaded. And today, the same thing as well. People will war against the gospel and the war, as we can see from this text, was well underway in his day because he says, suppose ye that I come to give peace on the earth? I tell you nay, but rather division. Jesus is going to bring division to our families. He's going to bring war to your families. So he's not sitting back like some of the ancient kings of old who would sit in the way behind their troops and basically try to direct from behind. He's like more like Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great had companion cavalry. Do you realize what that means? That means he rode with his cavalry into the battle head on, and he was the head of that cavalry. So what we find is Jesus is going to bring a battle to the families because it's going to be whether they're going to accept him or not. And he takes it very seriously. Each soul, he will fight to the death, and which is what the cross really is, for each soul, each one of us. And our battle today is over souls as well. Each person's decision that we come in contact with. It could be our decision, our family's decision, our neighbor's decision, our community members around us. Our deepest relationships will be tested and some will be divided based upon whether or not they accept Jesus. But hear Jesus' message clear. Didn't he say the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against the church? Against that message, that rock that the church is founded upon? So he sees us as going on the offensive, which means you're, you're storming a fortress, just like he stormed into this world, really. Seemingly peaceful at first, but now when he comes back, he brings a sword, doesn't he? So this text is telling us that he didn't come just to let the earth continue on in peace, and which we know it wasn't Pax Romana everywhere, but he came to bring decisions and battles, spiritual battles to every home as they make a decision for him or not. And so Jesus continues on. He says, And he said to the people, When you shall see a cloud rise out of the west, straightway you say, There comes a shower. And so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say, Hey, there's going to be heat. And it comes to pass. We all know about winds around here and you could have a really cool day and next thing you know, a wind changes everything. That's what he's talking about. You hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it that you do not discern this time? This time. You do not discern. Now John Wesley comments on this verse. He says, how do you not discern the season? He says, of the Messiah's coming, the Messiah's right here, distinguishable by so many sure signs. Here Jesus was saying, I'm right here amongst you. Their battle is going on over accepting me. You can read the weather, but you can't see the struggle that's going on in your own heart. You can't see the fact that the Messiah is right in front of you and he's asking you to follow him. You can't discern this time. We typically use this for the end of time, signs of the times. But he's saying, I'm right here. I'm the fulfillment of all those prophecies and all those truths. You can't discern it. If the Messiah is coming soon, 
The second coming is coming soon. And we know about it. We should recognize that he's the one asking us to follow him and to share him with those around us. Can we not discern the times? Can we not storm the gates of hell ourselves? He goes on, Yea, and why even of yourselves judge ye not what is right? You judge what is right, right? When you go with your adversary to the magistrate, as you're along the way, give diligence so you can be delivered from him. So if you're guilty and you're going to the judge and you know you're guilty, then basically agree with your adversary. Otherwise, you're going to get there and you're going to be there until you pay the very last mite. What is he saying? Put all these illustrations together. The cloud and the wind and all of that saying, I'm right here. And yet, they're guilty because what do they want to do to him? Eventually, they want to kill Jesus. And he's saying, you can judge things. If you're guilty along the way, you'll admit it, won't you? You'll, you'll make it up with your adversary and you'll t- make things right. Otherwise, you know you're going to pay. And Jesus is saying, I'm right here with you. Let's reconcile. Let's have this at one minute. Let's atonement. Or there will be a punishment. And we can discern the weather by flipping on the channel or looking on our smartphones. I was going to say, uh, sometimes they feel like stupid phones, don't they? You're, Come on! Okay, but, but do we realize the Messiah is among us now? Every Sabbath, every day of our lives, coming to us in the cool of the day. He's never stopped doing that since creation. That we are right here in this text. He's saying, accept me and share me with those around you. Can you imagine if the Jewish nation would have accepted him and, and then become the light of the world that they're, they're described at in the Old Testament? They would have been the light of the world. He wouldn't have had to apply that to these, these disciples with all kinds of weird backgrounds. I mean, can you imagine having a zealot and a tax collector in the same group? If we read over that and we think, oh yeah, there's some weird backgrounds in Jesus. You know, fishermen, yeah, we kind of get that. They're kinda, we think they're not the smartest. You know, they went to school. They, they had some training and they knew the scriptures. They just didn't get into rabbinical school. So a zealot and a tax collector. The zealot goes around with a knife on him and he says, hmm, you know what? I'm waiting for one of those tax collectors. And when he's not looking, I'm going to knife him, rip him up, and then leave him there in a pool of blood and a bunch of other Jews, because the Jews don't care about him anyway. He's a traitor, collecting our taxes and skimming off the top. And no one will ever know. If you doubt that, do some Google searches about the people of the knife in Jesus' day. The zealots. Do some research on the zealots. Because that's exactly the person that Jesus calls alongside the tax collector. And he expects them to work together to put the knife away. What should have brought division is a message that actually brought two hearts together in brotherly love. And so he tells us as well, I'm right here amongst you. I can bring together anybody I want to. Do you know what time it is? It's time to see the Messiah is in our midst, it's time to share the Messiah with the world all around us. We have our time prophecies, we have our signs in the natural world. What time really is it? Well, there's one main sign, and this is our FBI answer for our young people. There's two scriptures, young people, so make sure you write them both down. Matthew 24, verse 14, and Acts 1, verse 18. I'm going to look them up in my Bible, invite you to look them up in yours. Matthew 24, verse 18. 
Matthew 24, verse 18. Excuse me, 14. Acts 1, 18. All right, when you have Matthew 24, verse 14, can you say amen so I know you have it? A few of you. All right, another one. I hear some pages turning. Matthew 24, verse 14. I'm going to read while everybody else is getting their amens ready. Then many false prophets will rise up, verse 11, and deceive many. And because of lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold, verse 13. But he who endures to the end shall be saved, verse 14. What brings about the end? This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. The end will come. All right, put that one together with Acts chapter 1, verse 18. Acts chapter 1, verse 18. This does two things. It gives our young people time to write it down. And number two, at a certain point in the sermon, if I sense there could be a drifting off point, it gives you something to do with your hands. Acts chapter 1, verse 18 Actually, it should say verse 8. Excuse me. Let me just change that right now. Give you a little more time there. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and the end of the earth, or the uttermost parts of of the earth. You notice the progression. You've probably heard this before. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, those people that are seen as enemies even of Israel, the uttermost parts of the world. So my question is, what time is it? We're the nations. We are the uttermost. Anderson, California. Get it on Google Map and see how far away it is from Palestine. You're basically the uttermost parts of the earth. You can maybe say, well, China, maybe others. You know, there's, there's, you could just do a, a map between Palestine or, excuse me, Israel and other parts of the world. You're pretty close to it. You're one of the nations. I'm one of the nations. We live in a nation of nations where people from all over the world have come here. And guess what? God is wanting to reach this nation so he can take the gospel to the whole world easily. Now, he's going to do it himself. He's going to do it anyway, but he wants us there as well. We are the uttermost. They've already gone to Jerusalem. They've already gone to Judea. They've already gone to Samaria. They've already gone to the nations of Mediterranean. They've already gone and spread all the way over here and to other parts of Asia. We are the uttermost. And we are living in a time of blessing that God could bless us abundantly if we would just share as we reach each person and we see them as a potential child of, of the king because Revelation says the people who are saved at the end are a kingdom of priests. This crown of life title for a series, or the crown of Jesus. He was willing to take off his crown, put on a crown of thorns, to get, literally, if he had to, give you his crown. He sees each one of you with a crown on your head. My little girl, girl somebody gave her that little tiara, and I thought to myself, well, how fitting. It's, about, it's, it's what we're talking about, the crown of Jesus. He sees that type of crown, even more glorious than that, on your head if you receive him as your Savior. So we are the uttermost. And crowns 
by faith, we should be seeing Lord willing on people all around us if they would accept Jesus. So I believe time is running out. We, we have to share because millions upon millions of human souls ready to perish. Now this was written years ago with a desire of ages. They're bound in chains of ignorance and sin, have never so much as heard of Christ's love for them. You say, well, we live in the 21st century where there's internet and everything, but yet, you know what? There are so many distractions, so many things that plague our souls that we don't always focus on Jesus, even as Christians. So what do you think is going on in people's minds who do not have them as their Lord? Were our condition and theirs to be reversed, what would we desire them to do for us? All of this, so far as lies in our power, we are under the most solemn obligation to do for them. So get a sheet of paper out one of these afternoons. Say, you know what? What would I like somebody to do for me? And just list off a few human conditions. If I was suicidal, if I was going through a marriage that was, that was just demolishing and separating and there's no hope, if I was basically in jail, just put down a few human conditions and say, what would it be like if I was in their situation? What would I want them to do for me? Christ's rule of life by which every one of us must stand or fall in the judgment. What are we going to stand or fall on? His rule of life is whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do you even to them, Matthew chapter 7. In the judgment, if you read Matthew 25 carefully, it's about what you've done to others, the outflow. Have you allowed Jesus to flow out of you? Have I allowed Jesus to flow out of me to others through kindness and to relieve their needs so they could hear Jesus? So she says, Christ's rule of life is what basically we're going to stand or fall in the judgment. And so we should see crowns on the masses all around us. We are in a perishing time. We must reach as many as possible with a message. We should have an urgency, but we should also have a method. Pretty easy to remember this. Mum, right? M-U-M. Message, urgency, method. And as I think of the method for this whole United States, what it would look like, we were told years ago what it might look like. Christ basically, like our vision statement we went through earlier, mingled with people, figured out their needs, met those needs, won their confidence, and then bade them follow me. But what could that look like here at Anderson? As I think of sharing Jesus, it's basically all of us doing it together. There's no way that you by yourself, humanly speaking, are going to be able to reach all of Anderson, all of Sash. South Shasta County, including Reading. There are a lot of areas that aren't even being worked right now. There's no way that we can do it by ourselves, but together he has placed the gifts within this body of Christ, within Reading, within Palisade, within this whole area, so that together we could reach this area. And to say otherwise is to doubt his gifts from the Holy Spirit. And so we are going to reach this area the way they did it in the Apostles' Day, the way they did it in the Reformation time, the way that early Adventism did, the way that some churches, even in early Adventism, even today, do not and did not. It's the way that Jesus has since the beginning. You see, at creation, Jesus didn't just, it wasn't just a creative act by Jesus. You had the Father and the Holy Spirit. You find the Spirit hovering upon the waters. There was a team effort. You find in redemption in 1 John, it's them all, those three working together as well. You find in the Gospel proclamation, he gives it to the whole body of Christ. You find in Corinthians, that that heavenly plan, Jesus is the head. He's working through the church. He's wanting to work together with the church and have the Father and the Holy Spirit work with us. And the result is Revelation 18, verse 1. 
the earth will be lightened with his glory. Jesus said, the glory like I had with my father at the beginning. That's the glory. Not somehow making ourselves shine enough in our own efforts to, to somehow think that we're shining for Jesus, but to have Jesus shining through us. And the core rationale, the core reason for it is love. You have a handout out there on the upcoming events table. You can pick up to read most of this. But what did this method look like in the Seventh-day Adventist church? All Seventh-day Adventist clergymen are missionaries, not located pastors. Usually I preach, this, I preach these quotations. I've never preached this sermon before, but these quotations I hand out usually when I first come to a church. But when I got here, we began to work together. We developed the mission statement together. We developed the vision statement together. The department started working together. And so now we're at a stage where we all need to think beyond now. We've got we to all work together to go beyond what we're currently even doing because the pastors were never meant to be located in the Adventist churches, which means they were not to be settling over the churches. They were busy preaching, teaching, and organizing churches the world over. That was the Seventh-day Baptist Sabbath recorder that we actually quoted from in our Review and Herald. They were wondering how come we were growing and the Seventh-day Baptist church was in decline, and they're still in decline today. I've researched them heavily for a, a master's project. And they've shrunk, we've grown, yet in North America we are graying, and yet in North America we also find that, that we're only growing at 1%, and that's including non-Caucasian growth, which is exploding when ours is basically flatlined or declined. And in an interview years ago, A.G. Daniels, excuse me, Elder Starr, was asked, how have we grown in 40 years? By what means have you carried forward your work so rapidly? He said, well, in the first place, we have no settled pastors. There's that idea again. Our churches are taught largely to take care of themselves, while nearly all of our ministers work as evangelists in new fields. Now, of course, I like that because that's one of my top gifts, administration and evangelism. Does that mean I don't do anything here? No, that means I do things here, but we begin to work together. Things that you can do better than me, do, and don't wait for me to do them. In the winter, they would go out into the churches, halls, or schoolhouses and raise up new believers. In the summer, we use tents, pitching them in the cities and villages where we teach the people these doctrines. Am I saying I'm going to go pitch a tent? Maybe not here, but maybe somewhere else. You, know, you never know. This year, we shall run about 100 tents in this way. Besides these, we send our large, out large numbers of co-porters with our tracts and books who visit the families and teach them the Bible. Last year, we employed, now some of these are employed, and later on, you're going to find some are just missionaries, 125. So in the winter, the pastors were busy going out and raising up believers. In the summer, they were busy raising up believers. And who would maintain while they went along? They would work with the leaders and say, all right, while I'm going into this next area, please maintain. It's really the method of Christ. He's the one who storms the gates of hell ahead of his troops. And so he expects us to do a similar manner. Can we just copy this? I don't think so. But if you can get the main principle, I think you would do well. The main principle being outward focus. Not just a gathering, but outward focus. Taking the message to these areas. Going mobile. Bible reading is another class of work. The workers go from house to house holding Bible readings. That's where you get the book Bible readings from the home. With from 1 to 20 individuals. Those Bible readings for the home books were actually members going out and holding those, those Bible readings. Last year they gave 10,000 such Bible readings. Now this is of a denomination that's very small at the time. At the same time, we had employed about 300 canvassers, constantly canvassing the country and selling our larger works. Those are those big books. 
In addition to this, every church has a missionary society. It'd be like your personal ministries, all of this. Last year, these numbered 10,500 members. Every one of these members does more or less missionary work, such as selling books, loaning or giving away tracts, obtaining subscriptions to our periodicals, visiting families, looking after the poor, aiding the sick. That last year, they made 102,000 visits, wrote 40,000 letters, obtained 38,000-plus subscriptions, distributed 15 million pages of reading material. Boy, and 1.6 million periodicals. That was an interview by Elder Starr when they asked him, why is the Adventist church growing so rapidly? And I understand. Our church is getting older, and we've, a lot of you have been faithful over the years, but at least get the principle of this. We have to have one final push. And let's face it, until we reach the younger generations and, and, and have them come in amongst us, and this is, this is the plight of every church. Reading is probably going to go that way eventually. Palisado, and I know of a church up where I'm from, 600 members that years ago had one of the biggest young people programs, but now they're even aging to the point where, where they want a young pastor to come and to help them because they don't know how to reach the young people. This is everywhere. It's not here. Just here. It's a problem across all of North America. And the only way I've seen churches pull out of it is for them to say, you know what? I'm tired. I've given faithfully. I've worked faithfully. I'm going to give one final push. I'm going to try to keep, keep going. That's the only way to kind of pull out of that. And the Lord blesses that. And what ends up happening is, strangely enough, those grandparent churches end up having grandkids for some reason. Young people just all of a sudden start coming into some of those churches. You say, well, that's just a fairy tale. It's not a fairy tale. I've seen it on occasions. It doesn't happen every time, but it's happened enough to give me hope. And so I think this can be reversed, not through more activity, because that's actually a sign of a dying, not just denomination, but you realize that some businesses at a last flurry of activity means they're closing up shop. That's, that's in the business world. So we don't want to just do a bunch of activity and then peter out. We want to choose wisely what we do and part of that is outward focused, but we also have to recognize that we need one final push as well in this world. We have not settled our ministers over churches as pastors to any large extent. In some of the very large churches, we have elected pastors over them. This would not classify here, but as a rule, we have held ourselves ready for field service, evangelistic work, and our brethren and sisters have held themselves ready to maintain their church services and carry forward their church work without settled pastors. And I hope this will never cease to be the order of affairs in this denomination. For when we cease our forward movement, work and begin to settle over our churches, to stay by them, to do their thinking and their praying, their work that is to be done, then our churches will begin to weaken and lose their life and spirit and become paralyzed and fossilized and our work will be on the retreat. If we're not on the offensive, then we're on the retreat more than likely. We're on the defensive. So this is someone writing in 1912 saying, this is A.G. Daniels, our, our general conference president, saying we have to have a forward work. What does that look like in each church? It may be different, but we have to have a forward work. So at this time, my question is, are we on the retreat or are we on the advance? I think in a lot of ways, Anderson has gone on the advance. There's a lot of things you've been doing. But there may be some of us who come from week after week and it's time for you to join us in this advance. And today at the end of the service, I'll give you an opportunity to, to basically make that decision. It may not be a huge amount of time. It may not be much that you can do. But is there some way 
that God can use you in these times that we're living. I think so. Another quote I found was this one, HMS Richards. I remember reading about him before my very first evangelistic series, and I was getting ready to go live in this town way away from my family, and I said, well, I'm going to read about him. And he, he told about his first series of meetings, which was a failure, and yet he learned so much from it, and God eventually did bless what he thought was a failure. So he's very much an encouragement in his books. Of course, he's deceased now. He said, the time of too many of our preachers, instead of being occupied with carrying the message into new fields, is taken up in settling church difficulties and laboring for men and women who should be towers of strength instead of subjects for labor. I think there are many people here who are towers of strength. Which means, I cannot wait on you every week from now on. You have your personal devotions. I'm not going to just all of a sudden not preach next week, but I'm just saying, you are towers of strength, some of you. You are stronger than some of you than I am. It's time to allow, maybe you don't have the energy to go forward into these areas, but I have the energy. And I want to go forward into some other areas that we haven't worked yet. Or maybe we tried in the past and it failed but it takes a maintenance here as well. So the elders and I are looking at what that will look like. But basically, you are the towers of strength. I see you as that. I pray for you as that. I see the God in your lives that has encouraged me in the last couple of years in ways I've never been encouraged before. And a lot of you are supporting the work here. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it's time that we, we take an offensive move as a church. When I was baptized and later become a young preacher, we looked upon churches that had to have settled pastors over every flock as being decadent. Most of our preachers were out on the firing line, holding meetings, winning men to Christ. And to me, I think that even means taking people with them to show others how to do it, because eventually their ministers are going to be wiped out eventually. They're, they're not, the ones who are faithful to God eventually are, are going to be taken out of the picture, at least through Revelation 13's beast. Okay? So you, you have to have a replenishing line that takes the place of them. And so they were raising up new churches, and every few months they would come around and visit the churches that had already been established. Now, I'm not saying that's the way to go, but that's what they would do. They seemed to be, according to our view of it, the plan of the apostolic church. That's the way they did it. Does that work in the 21st century? I think in some ways it does. If you have strong towers of faith in that local congregation. And so he wrote that to the young ministers. At this time, I believe, we're not decadent as a church, but I believe as strong towers of faith we should allow a forward advancement into other fields. And th there's so many more quotes I can give you, but basically, she, Ellen White tells, and this is her now instead of Daniels and HMS Richards, but she tells us to carry the triumphs of the cross into the regions beyond. You are the uttermost, or part of the earth, but there are parts of the uttermost that aren't worked fully yet. So that's what I'm talking about. Keeps going on and on. These are all in that handout. You can grab them, but basically... As, as you have God's truth planted in your heart, then basically you're able to feed others, and then I also will feed others as well. We work together in that. And so at this time, we are the light of the world. Jesus called us the light of the world. We are the light bearers. We're to develop proper methods so that every church member would have a work to do as a member of the body of Christ. You would be taught that unless you can stand alone without a minister, you would need to be converted anew and baptized anew. You would need to be born again. And not, I don't think that applies to very many people here, but just catch the main thing. Proper methods need to be developed. 
Maybe some of you say, you know, I'd like to help in a forward advancement, but I don't know how to give Bible studies. You know the Lord, but you don't know how to, like when they start asking questions and you have to get a decision, well, we can have classes on that. It's very easy to do these things. Or you say, well, I don't know how to lead a small group, but there's books that are written on that all over the place. Or you say, well, I don't, there, there, there's a matter of proper methods being developed in your mind so that every one of us has a work to do for those around us. And eventually, you'll get to the point where you don't need a minister anymore. I think if all of a sudden I was wiped out, that would happen anyway here. I really think it would. But I'd like to feel more confident in that, in that, that statement as well. So what am I to do? I'm to plan wisely as a faithful steward to help each one here become the worker that God would have them to be. And what will our church look like? What would it look like? Well, I believe it would look like this beehive church. And I think in its part, we're already partly there. A beehive church will have a multifaceted program for reaching the community. This is going to be in your quarterly later on. During the past few years, the beehive in San Francisco has been indeed a busy one. Many lines of Christian effort have been carried forward by our brethren and sisters there. Notice, this is talking about the membership. The membership is doing all these things. They are visiting the sick, finding homes for orphans and work for the unemployed, nursing the sick, teaching the truth from house to house, distributing literature, conducting classes on healthful living and caring for the sick. A school for the children has been conducted in the basement of this, of this church, this meeting house, for a time a working men's home, that's basically a transition home, and a medical mission was maintained. On Market Street near the City Hall, there were treatment rooms operated as branches of the St. Helena Sanitarium. In the same location was a health food store. I'm not saying you have to have a health food store, but look how all the facets they were doing. Near the center of the city, not far from the call building, was conducting a vegetarian cafe. This is a building where basically they're receiving interest and calls in, which was open six days of the week and entirely closed on the Sabbath along the waterfront. Ship mission work was carried on. This is probably more like telegrams, I'm not sure. At various times, our ministers conducted meetings in large halls in the city. So you read all this down here, where are the ministers at? They're down at the bottom of the list. I mean, not that that's an area of, of low. It's just saying, here's what the ministers were doing. Thus, the warning message was given by many. So are we here as a church yet? We're visiting the sick and homebound. Yes, you are. Are you finding homes for the destitute? I think we can point to resources rather than eating them up to do that. Nursing the sick, I think some of you have done that. House-to-house Bible studies, I think some have done that, but not fully. Distributing literature, yes. Classes on healthful living, yes. As you look through this whole list, I just made a list on my screen here. Do we have a school? Will we support one? Maybe we need resources for young people here, though. And that's where you see in your newsletter every month, Adventist Family Ministries, we're trying to launch members who will help with that, along with, I'm willing to help plan it, but I can't do everything. Health food store, we don't have one. I'm not sure if we'll need a health food store. If you're going to do a health food store, you need to combine it with a cafe and some other things to really make it successful. Work on the transit system. They were taking it to, to the ships. No, I don't think we really have something on the transit system. We could. Ministers conducting meetings in various places that were unreached. I've done them here at Anderson, but I think we need to do them other places as well. So that's a beehive church. What could it work look like here? It could look something like that, but with a 21st century flair. And so, what's it going to look like? In 2016, I'm going to phase in time to go to outlying areas and organize members, that's you and I together, into outreach leadership teams. This is an old concept. This whole manual is written on it. 
the member care of this church will be taken care of by your fellow members primarily. Except for hospital visits, except for emergencies, something's falling apart in your life. But you'll be praying for each other. You'll be ministering to each other. If someone has a physical need in this church and you know about it, then take care of it. Some of you have already started doing that. But that's called member care. The elders will help in leading people as to what to do on that. We will be advisory. The preaching rotation will change because you're going to find the elders and I are going to team up on sermon series together. I may kick it off, but your elders are going to assist through it. Why? Because it takes about 15 hours for me to come up with a sermon during the week some weeks. And those of you who put together them, you know. And so some of those weeks, I'll be spending that 15 hours going somewhere else. I'll divide that time up. And so that will change. We'll also be having trainings on how to give Bible studies, how to start small groups, how to do member care in those small groups. And some of you who are already doing small groups, you know that a lot of member care takes place in those small groups. If somebody needs prayer, you're there praying for them. If someone's going to the hospital, you know about it before I even do. So it's already happening. It's just, I'm telling you, here's what it's going to look like. I am very big into collaboration, but your vision statement said very clear, it's time to go into the outlying areas at some point. And this is what it's going to have to look like for that to take place. The elders in 2017, the deacons and deaconesses, the small groups, primarily as we get into 2017, will be taking care of the spiritual and physical concerns that arise. I will help in advisory roles. And the team, that's our elders team, will also be phased in in, in its entirety. You'll have teaching elders who, if you've got a question about doctrine or whatever, they will deal with that. You'll have evangelism elders who will go with me into the front lines. You'll have administrative elder who is going to help with the organizing the platform and the duties here. You'll have the member care elders who will work with all those small groups so that they have somebody to touch bases with and say, hey, here's a serious concern. Let the pastor know. We'll begin in Cottonwood meeting with the community leaders I'll be going door to door, I'll be doing literature, I'll be also talking to those community leaders down there and finding out what their needs are to eventually have several activities to raise up a small group in Cottonwood. That's our first area. And then those leaders who eventually develop in Cottonwood and other areas, we will meet together on a monthly basis with our elders and we will have planning meetings to help the work continue to go forward in addition to your board meeting. There'll be reaping meetings, and biblically-based, family-oriented. Biblically-based means it's not just we get together and talk about all the problems, but we encourage each other biblically. These meetings, these small group meetings, will be family-oriented. There are study guides that go with every single adult study guide in some of these curriculums that you can use for kids who come into your midst. Every week that you meet, the kids are meeting as well, and they're studying something they can understand. And then those groups are not only that, but they're going to be outreach-focused. This results in a G7 formation, which means in 10 years, basically, instead of just having one main meeting location here, we'll have seven. Maybe not churches, maybe not 140 members like that pastor in the opening story, but small groups that are functioning well, that are meeting the needs, that are basically a duplication of what you're already doing here. That means that's going to take some time to form all of this. And I'm going to ask for a helper, Gene, to come up here. Because there's two sign-up sheets I want to get input from. And I could put them out there in the foyer, but I know. I know it's easy to walk right by them because I walk by stuff all the time out there on the sign-up on the bulletin board. 
And so I'm going to pass one, start one out over here. This one is for Cottonwood. If you see yourself as going through and helping with a forward advancement in Cottonwood, you live in Cottonwood, you know people in Cottonwood, then I want to at least know that you're interested in helping me there. And that will be something that the elders and I will talk to you about. It doesn't mean you're doing anything, but it does have categories, financial, spiritual, or volunteer. So we're going to take this, and if you're in Cottonwood especially, please sign up there. And I'll put this one over here on this side. If you're interested in helping maintain what we're already doing here, and some of you are already doing a lot, then I want you to sign up here if you're not already engaged in, in several things here already. Meaning, if, if you're coming from week to week and you feel like, you know what, I'm helping every once in a while, but I like to help more regularly here at Anderson, then you'll sign up here. And there's specific ways to do it. Administrative, financial, spiritual, and volunteer. And it, it kind of is self-explanatory. So we'll put it, start that one on this side and make sure they get to both sides. But sign up as the Lord leads you to. And if you need time to think about it, then just pass it to the next person. I'll give you an out this time. And, and basically pray about helping here or helping out further out. So what time is it? It's time to join Jesus on the front lines. It's time to keep this burden for Jesus strong. And years ago, I lost that burden. I remember I used to drive by cities in the Midwest and I'd see the night lights out there, the city in the distance, and I'd say, Lord, what would you have me to do there? I don't have time to get over there. Is there anybody there that's following you that I could work with and that we could start up a work there in that city? And, and having four churches spread out over that many miles, you think that a lot. Like, Lord, there's just so, so much the members are already doing. There's only 12 in this church. But what can we do? Are there laborers out there in the harvest we can tap and work these areas? And I remember... Up until, I'll frankly tell you, up until a couple of months ago, I lost it here. I lost my burden to drive by cities and say, Lord, what would you have me to do here? I was so busy, and maybe you've had that experience, that I'm just doing what I can to get through week after week, feed my soul, feed the church's soul, but, but Lord, I need to go outward, and I lost that burden. I really did, until, until I started rereading these quotations that I read to you today. And so how does one person like me reach 38,000 here in South Shasta County? Well, it's easy then, isn't it? There's over 150 active members here. Maybe you're not all here on the same week. But that you've got a whole lot better outcome than the 70 up there that we're trying to reach 76,000. There's a lot more of you here still. And so I would encourage you to find a way to get involved if you already are not. If you hold the post down here, that's great. But then also recognize we're invading Cottonwood. Then Happy Valley. Then we're going up into South Reading and to Central Reading. And we're going to put a group in Bella Vista. And we're going to put a group over in the west side, northwest side of Reading. And some of you already know because you already have groups in those areas. But if you already have a group in those areas, let me know and let's begin to be more focused on outreach into those areas. And we're going to put a group into the mall. And so this is really what it's going to look like, Lord willing. It's going to take a lot of labor, a lot of time, a lot of resources. But I believe this is the beehive that God has called at this time for this area of Shasta County. And I hope in the process, Redding and Palisadro themselves will work those areas as well. And so, how do we discern the times? Well, we have a message, we have an urgency, and we have a method. We all work together to reach the ends of the world because it's almost time for this event. You see that in your rearview mirror? Every time I see that in my rearview mirror, that, that phrase right there, 
on my mirror, I think about this picture. Someday soon we're going to look and basically even the second coming is going to be behind us. We're going to be right there with Jesus. We're going to be in the beautiful new earth. And this time that we had here will just seem like it was nothing. I mean, what is a hundred years compared to eternity? Let us do what we can for it's almost time for the Lord to come. Let us recognize that there are tragedies and things all around us, but we can affect change in this world. And next week we'll be talking about what we can do when tragedies strike before Jesus comes. But this week I want to encourage you to discern the time and try to reach as many as possible, maybe like you're already doing, but if you're not, then, can, then let me challenge you to do it even more. I invite Lorna to come up and we're going to play this song as that sign-up sheet continues to go around. And if you're from neighboring churches or you're visiting, just say, you know what, maybe I'm going to go back to my church and say, what can I do here? Wherever you're at, find a way to discern Jesus is coming. What can I do for my neighbors here? I'd like you to stand with me as we sing this closing song. It is almost time for the Lord to come. Almost time for the Lord to come, I hear the people say. The stars of heaven are growing dim. It must be the breaking of the day. Oh, it must be the breaking of the day. Oh, it must be the breaking of the day. The night is almost gone. The day is coming on. Oh, oh, it must be the breaking of the day. The signs foretold in the sun and moon, in earth and sea and sky. Aloud proclaim to all mankind, the coming of my master draweth nigh. Oh, it must be the breaking of the day. Oh, it must be the breaking of the day. The night is almost gone, the day is going on. Oh, it must be the breaking of the day. It must be time for the waiting church to cast her pride away. With girded loins and burning lamps To look for the breaking of the day Oh, it must be the breaking of the day Oh, it must be the breaking of the day The night is almost gone the day is coming on. Oh, it must be the breaking of the day. Go quickly out in the streets and lanes and in the broad highway and call the maimed, the halt and blind to be ready for the breaking of the day. Oh, it must
Father in heaven, we're so thankful that you sent Jesus to us, left the courts of heaven, left his heavenly garb, if you will, behind, his kingly robes, to come to this world to reach each one of us in darkness. And thank you so much that his words are still written down and they've come here to the uttermost parts of the earth. But we pray, Lord, here in the uttermost, we can take your message to those around us so that soon and very soon, that breaking of the day will come and behind us will be the ones who were formerly maimed, blind, and also wretched and miserable and poor, including our own hearts. We pray, Lord, you'll guide us to have that burden. Help us to share our message with urgency, with a method that we can reach as many as possible before you come, Lord Jesus. And we say, Lord, come soon. Amen.